right. I think. Yeah, I think we're live. So okay, yay. I'm try find us on Facebook too and see if I can get into that. Zoom says we're live, but right. I think Facebook is still thinking about it. Would Zoom lie to us? I ask you. <laughs> Navigate over to your page. I'm. Yes, I see us live. Yeah, yeah. Well, I see a black screen. <laughs> so, you good morning. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Dyslexia Coffee Talk. We have with us today Elizabeth Hamlet of LD Advisory, who is really kind of our or not kind of, she is our community expert on transitioning into college and all of those things. I-4s, IEPs, accommodations. I've been following Elizabeth for a while and I'm so excited that she's able to join us today. So thank you, Elizabeth, for being here. Thank you for having me. I always love an opportunity to reach out to folks. Um, how did you get into... I mean, what, what was it that sort of prompted you to take the journey of trying to figure out how do you navigate into college? That's kind of a big thing. I see tons of questions about that. Right. So, I mean, so my interest, you know, and my, my career path is a, is a pretty crooked one, but the older I get, the more I realize we, you know, and this is sort of a cited editorial comment, we need to tell young people that is very rarely a straight line from what you study in college to what you do for the rest of your life. I think what's nice about our time, and maybe it used to be different, was that people can start doing a lot of different things or, you know, something you, a path you go down might lead you to know, learn about something you didn't know existed before. So um, I had gotten a degree in uh, teaching special ed, uh, in, in special ed, excuse me, um, in the mid nineties. And, um, I had a job after that, that was only part-time. And, um, I decided to try and look for some additional work. And one of the jobs I took was working at the disability services office at the place where I had just finished my degree. And so, um, having just gotten my degree at that same school, I realized that my teacher preparation had not discussed with us as K through 12 teachers, what happened at college? And so that started to become an interest of mine. And then my next job here, uh, down here in New Jersey, after I moved, um, I started seeing students requesting accommodations that I knew we didn't provide and realized the reason they didn't know, I, they didn't know that we don't provide them um, is that their teachers probably have the same training I had. And so I started writing and started doing presentations and, um, uh, you know, I'm now at my third university where I do um, some documentation review. So we can talk in a moment about how students get um, registered for accommodations and what that process looks like. And, but I also get to work one-on-one -on -one with students and that's my favorite part. So um, the paperwork is necessary and it's important. Um, but yeah, so like I said, it, it's a pretty crooked path to where I was. And what I think is important, you know, this is the dyslexia community. Um, you all know a lot of stuff is not being taught in teacher training programs. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a public school teacher in my heart always. Um, and what I try to say to 
families when they, they're frustrated is, you know, it's hard when, when people's training doesn't include information, they're only going with what they believe is true. Um, and the challenge for my field is to, you know, figure out ways to communicate. Cause one of the, one of the, you know, unfortunate situations is there's sort of nothing in the colleges in the laws that prevail at colleges that require us to communicate to K through 12. Like there's this knowledge gap that nobody is designed to bridge um, and that the laws don't really have a mandate. Like there is, tr the, uh, I IDEA mandates transition services, but it doesn't specifically talk about what kind of information the people doing the transition services have to have. I mean, they need to be certified in special ed, but it doesn't dictate what that, what their training looks like, if you will. So um, anyway, that's a long way of saying there are some folks who do know the law and um, are able to report things accurately. And then there are those who, who don't. And so what, what, you know, leads to some difficulties sometimes is schools are telling uh, uh, um, families things about college accommodations that are sometimes just not true. And they're not doing it because they're mean and they're not doing it because they're trying to screw up students transition. They just, maybe they're ill-informed by somebody or nobody's told them anything and they just assume it. Yeah. And I, there was a lot in there that I love. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I, mean, no, no. I, I might be a little over-caffeinated. Yeah, this is a coffee talk. So, so this is slow a, me down at any point. Yeah, go ahead. This, this, this is a coffee talk. I am definitely over-caffeinated, but I had to wake up. So, mm -hmm. Well, it is sort of my, my you know, standard existence. So <laughs> it's not just, I don't only talk quickly because I'm from New Jersey. Uh, <laughs> so um, anyway, yes, his, hit me with whatever caught your, caught your ear in that. No, I, there, there was a first. I love that you pointed out that you know we need to be talking more to our kids that life is not a straight path. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I, I, I know for me, my I've always been in the corporate world, and one of the biggest things that's always annoyed me is people looking at me going, "So, what do you want to do? Where do you want to go? Where do you see yourself in five years?" And I'm right. like, I don't know. I just I I'm. I, I want to earn more. I want, I, I, yeah. I want to be better at what I do, you know, right? can't, can't you help me, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? And, um, at some point I, I went, okay, fine. I'll go to grad school. And I went to grad school and, you know, at some point I went, okay, fine. I want to do this in my career. And I went and found a way to do that in my career. And I've done that for the last 10 years, but I like to tell people that, you know, it's when I was 41, um, mm -hmm that or 41, 42, somewhere in there that my son hit the dyslexia wall that I went, all right, now I know what I want to do with the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think about that actor, Ken Jeong, who yeah. was a doctor, you know, I think that there are a lot of crooked paths and, yeah. um, you know, I mean, I didn't even say that my first master's degree is in teaching high school English. So there was, you know, a path I was on that just wasn't working out because they were laying teachers off when I was finishing grad school in the nineties. So, yeah. yeah, I was, um, so my undergraduate is in English. I was going to go get my MFA and then the PhD because I wanted to teach English at the college mm -hmm. level. Same. Yep. And it was 90 
96, 97 mm -hmm. and my university, which is one of the top universities for English creative writing in the country, had just hired a new professor for tenure track. And she, uh, she explained to me that there were two tenure track positions open in the entire country for that academic year and almost 600 applicants. And I went, okay, those are not career odds. I feel like throwing myself into um, And so I was a literature major and my story very much tracks with yours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so paths can diverge and take different correct. paths. I think that that's an important, that's an important discussion for all. Yes, children. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because but, I think people have to feel safe that it's okay to change your mind. Yeah. I remember when my brother's youngest was, you know, he was getting ready to leave college and he had done um, golf and he was like, what? He was like 22 and he's sitting there going, oh my God, he just, I, I feel the weight of the world. I mean, what if I make the wrong decision? <laughs> it was like, you're supposed to make the wrong decision. Oh, what? Yeah, but that's hard. Going on. That's hard. Yeah. Yeah. So is everything looking good on you? Oh, there it is. Okay. Yep. So that. anyway. Yes. Back None to of this has anything college. to do with dyslexia, but it's an important conversation. <laughs> but I think it can be part of it. Yeah, definitely. Um. But, um, and that was just, that was great. Now I'm like hyper-focused on that. Um, let's kind of switch gears for a second. I know one of the biggest questions that I see sort of come up, and this is across like all of the community groups and it's all of the years that I've been involved in this. I see people comment sometimes rightly, sometimes not correctly on do 504s or IEPs transition with the child into college. And I think that that's a huge thing that people don't understand well that we have the opportunity to talk about here. Thank you so much. If I, if I was only allowed to say one thing for the rest of my career, it would be about this. Thank you. Cause it is important. Yeah. So um, some of your uh, viewers may be aware that IDEA only covers K through 12. I find more commonly people do understand that. Um, but for those who did not know that, um, IDEA only covers K through 12. So now if your student doesn't graduate from high school in a traditional timeline, they're, they, they're covered by IDEA, is it through age, through age 21? Yeah, okay, thank you. Right, through 21 to 22. Um, but if they graduate, the way to really think about it is, you know, as soon as they have a, 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 a high school diploma in their hand, IDEA goes away. Um, so that one is pretty straightforward. I do find people understand that. 504 is the subject of a lot of understandable misunderstanding um, because people say, well, 504 covers colleges, Elizabeth. What are you talking about? But there are different subparts. And if you look at subpart D, which covers K through 12, it is massively bigger than subpart E. And the mandates are different. So, I mean, in, in preparing this professional development program a couple of years ago, I did not know that it, there's wording in 504 that says you could have an IEP um, as part of a 504, which kind of screwed with my head. But anyway, um, so it's the same thing. As soon as you have the high school diploma, um, sub 504 subpart D goes away for you. And now you're under subpart E. And so... When I say this, I also like to follow up immediately and say, but don't panic, because that, that's not what we're trying to accomplish. 
Um, what it means is that um, there may be some accommodations if your student received them in high school that will be different um, or that will not be available because of the changes in the mandates and the expectations and some exclusions that are actually written into 504. So um, for our dyslexic community in particular, um, foreign language I know is often a challenge for students. So beginning with admissions and to college and ending with graduation from college, what families need to be aware of is if a college has determined and gone through a, you know, some sort of process that would pass muster with OCR, the Office for Civil Rights, um, if they were challenged and determined that there's an important reason why they require um, a foreign language for graduation, they don't have to make a substitution for students with disabilities. They can, they can require them to take and perhaps pass that with a certain grade. Um, and so that's really important. Um, they also don't have to admit students who don't have foreign language on their transcript if it says that they need to have it to get in. So if I start Hamlet University tomorrow and I say you have to have had four years of foreign language to get into my school, I don't have to make exceptions. Now, anecdotally, I can tell you that parents have told me that their student went to a school that said on paper that they required these things um, and their student got in anyway. But what I can tell you is why that student got in and neither can the parent or the student. Okay. And admissions you know, doesn't disclose that kind of stuff. So right. um, it's important to look, um, and also, so, so one of the things I try to tell people is when you're looking at colleges, you should always be looking at what, what I would call their general ed requirements, um, the things you have to do beyond your major just to get through, because even for students who uh, don't have a disability, you should just do that as an educated consumer. Um, right. My youngest child goes to an engineering, so I'm pointing like everybody can see her. Um, <laughs> I know she's over there somewhere. Uh, um, goes to an engineering school. And when we were looking at schools for her, what, part of what we looked at was um, uh, liberal arts colleges that had engineering programs. And this is not the reason she chose a designated, designated engineering school, but I am sure that not having to write a bunch of, you know, uh, social studies or humanities papers is probably something that she enjoys uh, tremendously <laughs> as an engineer. So those are the kinds of things that are important. But it's especially important if, you know, your student really worries about passing foreign language or it's math. These are the things that, that tend to be the, the most commonly requested. Um, and even within a major, if you are going to be a, uh, an international business major, you probably have to take foreign language to, a, you know, to some degree and, 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 and achieve some sort of mastery. So that's a really important thing uh, for, for students to be aware of. And so while, you know, that's not like the common, it is an accommodations piece, it sort of gets into bigger systemic issues as far as the college goes. But to circle back to IDEA and 504D versus 504E and um, the ADA. In addition to not having to fundamentally alter our programs, um, we also don't have to provide what are called personal services. And the law only specifically mentions personal readers. Um, so for our students with dyslexia, 
if they're accustomed to taking their tests with a human reader. We can certainly substitute, and I think I, can, I have no stats on this, but I would say probably more of my colleagues are providing access to a laptop with, for instance, Read and Write Gold loaded on it to read it aloud to a student. Um, but for their personal study, we don't have to provide anybody. Now, what's also true is we don't have to provide personal devices. And that's where a, a, a license for Read and Write Gold for your personal laptop is something we don't have to provide. Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, what I see in my community is some schools buy a site license so that they can give copies out to, you know, give a license out to any student who's found eligible through our school. Um, sorry, through our disability services office. But other family, I'm sorry, um, other schools, uh, and I think, was it, you know, Will Marsh, the big dyslexia advocate? I think it was his school, maybe? St. Joseph's, but it, um, they'll buy, they'll just load Read and Write Gold onto the school's platform overall. And I'm probably using the wrong tech words. So my apologies to all, all you techies out there, um, whatever, to the system. So any student can log in with their student ID and use Read and Write Gold, and you don't even have to be registered with our office. So oh, wow. these are the kinds of things that as students are looking at schools, they can ask the Disability Services Office. Mm -hmm. So let me pause, because I'll give you a chance to ask any follow-up questions. <laughs> uh, I do at some point want to circle to di the Disability Office and mm -hmm. how that process works, and definitely the the evaluation piece and mm -hmm. how that works, you know, because in um, big picture rethinking dyslexia, yes, you have, um, yeah. yeah, you have that whole scene with, um, with Dylan I'm sorry, Sally and right. But I'm, I'm stuck on Kyle Redford yeah. and it's her son. <laughs> Dylan. Yes. Who was meeting with Sally Shaywitz because yeah. he was now at college, but you know, he, he needed like an updated evaluation. Right. Do you want to hit that now? Sure. Let's, sure. let's go to that okay. one. <laughs> so whatever rules you've been told um, probably are wrong. So I'm going to give you a rule, which is you have no idea and you always have to check school to school. So that's the one rule you should know. So I see people telling each other, um, oh my gosh, if it's, you know, more, three years old in a day, they won't take it. Um, it's all over the map. What the laws do not dictate is what we can or can't require or what we must or must not require. So right as, as of today, October 2nd, 2021, uh, OCR has not stepped in that I am aware of. Because okay. I've always heard the three-year Right. Rule. So <laughs> it used to be much more common. It was certainly never a rule. Um, but, you know, one thing to keep in mind, and let me just pause for a moment and say, nothing I say today, it should be construed as legal or medical advice because it is not. Um, and you should contact a qualified person if you need any of those things. But I've been hanging around in the field long enough. Um, I know a couple of things. Maybe so, the three-year thing came in as a bleed over from idea because of the um, three-year benchmark of evaluation. Yeah, and I think it probably was true a long time ago. And again, mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I'm not, aware of cases where it's been challenged by a student who brought it to OCR, but that doesn't mean that it didn't exist. But, you know, when it comes to accommodations and it comes to the documentation stuff, um, colleges have a lot of um, 
leeway. It's not the word I'm looking for today, but um, whatever. Courts are somewhat, and it doesn't usually go to court, but OCR, they just generally don't comment on that stuff. So if there's a case out there, please, you know, email me and send it to me um, because it would be useful for me to know, but I'm not aware of that. And so what happens is, as you say, I do think the three-year stuff is a carryover from years ago. Um, in my experiences, looking when I do a, a presentation in a new state, I try to go to the state university and look at their documentation requirements. And what you'll see much more commonly is the word current, current documentation. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of offices do that because not everything is the same. And what I mean is, if I have a, a non-traditional student coming in who got tested as a senior in high school and is now, I don't know, 40, my assumption is that that testing is probably going to fairly, unless without you know, a head injury or anything like that, have you know, represent where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but if a student got tested in second grade and is now an incoming college freshman, a lot happens in that time. Right. And so... I will not be comfortable making decisions, although some of my colleagues are. And so again, where I currently work, um, we would not take testing that was that old if that, but other colleagues do. And so um, <laughs> where I, I, I end up talking a lot is when I put up a post, a pro, you know, probably the, the, the foundational post of my website, which says, do colleges follow 504s or IEPs, which I posed as a question, hoping people would read it. Um, What often happens is they respond underneath and say, well, the college took my kids 504. And I have to say, was that as a form of documentation for the registration for accommodations? Mm -hmm. And so some colleges will take a 504 or an IEP as standalone documentation. Mm -hmm. It all depends. Yeah. I think a lot of the fear when it comes to evaluations too, is because parents are afraid if they get a new evaluation, then somebody's going to say their child's no longer dyslexic. Mm-hmm. And the point of the updated evaluations is, is to see the growth mm-hmm. or the regression, mm-hmm. if that's the case. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's a lot of the fear within, you know, because unfortunately that does kind of happen. Let's do an mm-hmm. updated evaluation so we can mm-hmm. try to deny your child again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, no, I completely understand what you're saying because an evaluation on an eight-year-old is not going to be the same thing as an evaluation on a 19-year-old. So, you know, I, the, the challenge is, and this is something to keep in mind, um, I read dozens of reports a year. And so examiners are very widely in my opinion as to who they deem has a disability or doesn't and for those who don't know there is no carved in stone standard now school right. districts tend to actually be much more um uh, uh consistent i think in their determinations because sometimes it's a state thing um but you know private examiners you know might what my view, one might view somebody's set of scores as representing a disability and somebody else might look at those and interpret them differently. Now, the, 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 um, the tests themselves might say there's a statistically significant difference between Elizabeth's, you know, verbal comprehension index scores on the Wexler and her um, reading, reading comprehension score on the Wyatt, the Wexler individual achievement test. And there's no doubt that that is 
statistically significant. That's what the test, you know, uh, developers say. But where I want you to be aware of, and it's not going to be a problem for a lot of our students, but be aware that the federal definition, and I, again, it's not legal um, advice, but it, it includes the, the term either substantial limitation or substantially limited, the definition of, of disability. And so we know that there are twice exceptional students whose cognitive abilities are, you know, in, in most places, you know, extremely high. And there are statistically significant differences where something is weak. But at some schools, and the same with their reading scores, for instance, but at some schools, if the measurement of those skills is really still within the average range, and remember, you know, in the bell curve um, of statistics, the, uh, uh, um, the, the average range goes from, <laughs> it's been a long week, uh, from the 25th percentile <laughs> to the 75th percentile. Right. And so, and smack in the middle is 50th. So if your lowest score is at the 63rd percentile, that might be statistically dis discrepant from your 99th percentile verbal comprehension scores. Mm -hmm. But you know there are schools that would say, you are not substantially limited in your abilities. And in fact, you're, you're, you know, you're stronger than 63% of your age mates. And so I, I, I don't want people to be scared. I want them to be aware. What can you do about it? I don't know. The scores are the scores. Right. Um, now, that being said, you know, and again, I, I sent my children to public school. My um, I am a public school teacher in my heart. Sometimes what can help is like in my experience, again, this is all anecdotal. I don't have my degree in psychology. Um, I have seen where, for instance, the Woodcock Johnson achievement tests don't always show that there is something that is a skill that is weak when it comes to reading. Um, but if you give them the timed, what is it, the tower, the timed oral word reading efficiency test, um, where they have to read a list of words aloud. So it has real words and then nonsense words. Sometimes that shows me that because the only thing that's timed on the Woodcock Johnson, and I just don't, I never worked with the Wyatt, um, what's timed on the Woodcock Johnson is the um, the reading fluency, the sentence reading fluency, and oral word reading fluency. Um, and I'm not as big of an expert on the Woodcock Johnson as I should be. I know the GORT and the KTEA so yeah, much better. So, I mean, and the GORT's a good one to to do too because it's measuring not just speed but accuracy. Right. And so if you're in a public district, you can ask if they have those additional tests and they'll give them. If you are getting a private evaluation and that's your, you should definitely be getting all that testing in my opinion. Um, so all of this is to say, I, I to, to loop it back to documentation, you never know. Mm -hmm. You brought up the question of what's the risk if our students get reevaluated. Um, and that's just something to be aware of, but it's right. not to me, you know, you know, it's a family decision about whether you think it's too much of a risk to get the retesting. Do that. colleges like, like public schools, do colleges offer evaluation services or do they always have to be private at that point? Uh, generally they have to be private. Um, okay. now I believe if you attend a community college anywhere in California, you can get tested for free. Okay. California is the only state that I know of that does it. Again, if you're watching and you're aware of another school, please let me know. 
Um, <laughs> and a lot of schools do have lists um, of places where students can get tested at a reduced rate, like at a clinic, you know, like a school psychology uh, uh, a program that is testing students. And, you know, I want to say this, um, in my opinion, getting a private evaluation is not always a guarantee of a more detailed report. So um, my, my colleague and friend Ellen Broughton has a post on, um, with the Clay Center for Learning, has a post on um, private versus public evaluations, I think, or was that, it might've been in her book, but I thought, I think she's got a post up on it. Um, so if you're gonna get a private evaluation, and Ashley, if you would remind me, I will send you all these links. Yes. On my website, I have two posts about private evaluations. One is what you should be looking for if you're gonna get one. And another one is a way to be an educated consumer and ask admit, uh, 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 examiners to um, provide you with what's called a redacted report where they can at least demonstrate to you what's gonna be in it without giving details away about a student. Um, and the reason it's important to me, if you're going to spend your own hard-earned money, is that, um, you know, it's the details that make the difference. So, you know, if I read a report that says, well, Elizabeth's score on this was 50th percentile, but she got the first couple of easy ones wrong and the hard ones correct, that gives me qualitative information that helps me understand her better. Um, so I also understand for those of you who are saying, yeah, but the public schools don't have time for that. I totally get it. That's fine. And, and again, public school reports to, you know, for the, I, the ones I've seen have been perfectly fine and they meet our requirements. Um, but if you're paying for it, I'd like to think you're going to get what you're paying for. So I'm going to sharply yeah. shift gears for a second. Let's can do you that. hear, can you hear the rain? No. Good. Caveat. <laughs> This is Texas. <laughs> might lose power. <laughs> I might lose my internet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so if I suddenly vanish. <laughs> Got it. All right. We will figure that out. But we'll if I vanish. I'll save my desk. Send me a text. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we can so, have another um, But I just wanted to like drop that in here just because. It is Texas. That does happen. Everybody knows about the disastrous electricity here since the freeze. So <laughs> moving on though, um, that made that made me kind of how. So they have the private evaluation. Then how do they go about asking for accommodations? Sure. So right, um, and it doesn't matter again, private or public, uh, whatever you've got. So as soon as your student has enrolled at Hamlet University and has a student ID number, they can register with me. So okay. you go online and you go to Hamlet's University site and you type in disability services. So some of the offices don't have names that you might associate with us, like accessibility, student resources, whatever it is. Um, but generally, you know, the algorithm knows where to take you. So once you get on it, it's, it's easier on some sites than others to find where to go. Mm -hmm. uh, look for things that say new students, register for accommodations, um, you know, things like that. Click on it and it usually will give you the process. So generally you fill out a form and it asks for the kinds of things you have to fill out on any form, your name, your phone number, your email address. 
And then a lot of them ask, what accommodations are you requesting from us? Why do you need them? Mm -hmm. What is your disability? What have you used in the past? And so what's important about that is this isn't, sh this shouldn't be the first time your students ever had to think about that stuff. So on my website, and again, if you can't find any of this stuff, um, please feel free to email me. Um, I have a free download from my book um, of, of a form that kind of helps you get them ready for that. But an even easier way to do that is just print up from any school that they're interested in um, the registration form or, you know, if it's not, if you, what's happening now, which is great, is a lot of offices are using these um, this pro these programs. And so the registration actually all happens online with a student ID number, which just means you can't see the questions. <laughs> um, but I occasionally find one online or you can use my form. Um, and like that to me is a great thing to even start your, your high school freshmen, ask them those questions and see if they can answer what, what are you using? Mm -hmm. um, now I just did that talk for the Lawrence School this week and it's some of these private schools for students with disabilities. And frankly, even at just private schools that aren't for students with disabilities, nobody's created a formal plan. And sometimes the teachers are just giving students as much time as they need, or you know, at these specialized schools, everybody gets a copy of um, PowerPoints at the start of class to, to take notes on. And so it's important for families and for professionals to be aware of what kinds of things you have to ask for at college. So um, you know, permission to use a laptop for note taking. Uh, I, I understand that some business programs, you're expected to have your laptop in class every day. Um, but in other schools, um, you may need permission or it's not a big deal. Some of these professors have no laptop policies, which they're not really allowed to do. Um, and so uh, if they get um, told that they can't use a laptop in class, and this is sort of getting on to, to the next piece after, after you get approved, they should report back to disability services immediately that a professor said no to an approved accommodation. So I got, I got myself off track. So you fill out the form. Um, often I, you have an intake appointment with disability services and then um, somebody will review the paperwork and, and, the, and the requests. They'll get back to a student and say, hey, Ashley, everything you've had is approved. Now, what I'm hearing from more and more um, colleagues as I, I do interviews for the next edition of my book is, again, they're using this software called AIM, something, something Accessibility Information Management. And so um, they will send students a, an email two, two weeks before school or at the time that they're initially approved. And it says, OK, log in here. Click which professors you want to get your notification. Um, and now. Some schools, DS will then generate the, the message. And in other schools, students themselves have to generate the message. Um, but what's really important about this process from start to finish is students' involvement in it. So this is not IDEA anymore. Right. We don't do child find. So starting with the idea that you don't even ever have to talk to us. You can go and, and there's a huge study that was done from the 00s to 2010 that found that a, a lot of students who had had accommodations who'd gone to college did not request them in college. I've actually heard that study. Yeah, the National Longitudinal Transition Study too. 
Um, yeah, so it's, that's kind of that eye-opening um, to a lot of us, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but that is their right. Now, what's also their right is to live with the consequences of that decision. Right. So in college land, uh, we are approaching midterm exams. So there are going to be a bunch, you know, historically speaking, there are going to be a bunch of students who didn't register with us and they started. And in the next two weeks, they're going to think, eh, you know what, maybe I should do this. And they're going to come to our office and we are going to go through our process at whatever the same speed is that we always go through our process because mm -hmm. that was their choice. We don't have to rush because now they're in a rush. Right. Um, and then there are going to be those who show up the day before their first midterm and we've never met them. And they're going to say, hey, I've always had accommodations. I've got my history midterm tomorrow. And we will say, good luck to you. And let us take your paperwork and we'll talk to you in two weeks. And that student's going to say, but I have an exam tomorrow. And we're going to say, you know, um, <laughs> in my many years on this earth, I've seen signs in offices that say things like, your failure to plan is not my emergency or something like that. Yeah. And so we would never say that out loud to students, but that's essentially the event. And I don't mean to say, and, I, and I'm not making fun of students. Like I, I procrastinate on stuff all the time. But what is so important is, again, it's not, it's not the mandates of IDEA. We don't have to stay, stay there all night and, and, and do this review. And mm -hmm. also, like, literally, it's almost impossible. So if I get through my workday and I review Ashley's paperwork, I, I don't know what classes you're in. Like, it's not my job to say Ashley's in a history class. It's taught by professor so-and-so. I get to email professor so-and-so and tell her Ashley needs to take her, you know, test with accommodations. That's not going to be the way it works. Right. And so um, there will be those who will show up after their midterms and they'll say, okay, well, Elizabeth, I didn't have my accommodations previously on, on that midterm I just took. Here I am. You've said, yes, I, I, I qualify for, for accommodations. I think the professor should take that exam off my, my grade because I didn't have my accommodation. I, you're laughing. No, because I actually <laughs> see it happening because I remember, I mean, college was really sort of those tough love, welcome to adulthood kind of. Yeah. I can't tell you how many of my professors looked at me and went, I care why. <laughs> well, and I don't think it's that. It's just that we're, and look, a, a professor can always choose right. to make that decision. That's, that's beyond us. That is, a, right. it's not something I commonly hear happening. Right. And so, <laughs> right. And it isn't, it isn't that we do because it's tough love and it's not our job to teach you an adult. It's just not our job to do that. I think it's, and that's kind of what I mean by the yeah, tough yeah, yeah. thing of it's just that, you know, you're in an adult world now it's time to, you know, right. Plan or face the consequences. <laughs> yeah. And again, you know, look, we, we're learning certainly since I was in college in the eighties, we've learned tremendous amounts about the brain and when it finishes um, developing, which is way yeah. later than frankly would be useful for college, which is too bad. Um, although nobody's making you go to college when you're 18. So <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Um, so when I say all this stuff, I want to be clear, like, I love college students. I work in this field because I love them. The people who work with me do the same. It's just a fact of life that this is how it works. And mm -hmm. so, um, yeah, I mean, even if your student's not 18 when they start college, if they're enrolled at college and not dual enrollment, 
at college as a full-time, as a college student graduating from high school, they are considered adults for the purposes of all this stuff. So if Ashley's mother calls my office, you know, the day before her midterm and says, or two weeks before her midterm and says, Elizabeth, I know Ashley's not going to get to it. I'm going to send in her stuff. Um, our office, you know, depending on who it is and what their philosophy might say, look, you can send it in, but I, I'm not going to do anything with it. Like I can't, so you can contact Ashley and let her know you sent it for her, but until she fills out this form and comes and sees us, nothing will happen. Right. Um, and please don't ask me questions and not that you're planning to, but about you know guardianship versus power of attorney, that is all very complicated stuff I wouldn't yeah. dare comment on. Um, that so is one thing I do talk to my son about though, is because yeah. I make him participate in mm-hmm. not everyone, but I'm yeah. only 12 but I'm starting to like pull him into meetings and stuff like that. And he's been warned that when he gets to high school, he's going to be a part of every discussion mm-hmm. because I'm like, buddy, when you turn 18, I'm out. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, <laughs> You're legally an adult. I'm out. <laughs> right. And I think, look, you know, one of the popular things that people write about is having kids do self-directed IEP meetings. Um, I have a different view of that in that I think there are ways to prepare students um, for these opportunities without having to sit in front of a table full of their own high school teachers. Um, What's interesting is that in my opinion, and and students may disagree with me, I think the dynamic is somewhat different when you're doing a disability services intake meeting. And on my YouTube channel is an interview I did with a, a disability services colleague and friend of mine. Um, about the intake meeting and what students should expect. And of course, you know, he doesn't represent everybody in my field either, but um, I think for a high school kid to sit down with their case manager and five teachers and, you know, present a PowerPoint on their their skills, however you want to do it, is different than an 18-year-old young adult sitting down one-on-one with somebody in our office. And so there are different ways to do that, you know, and, and of course the whole, the whole essence of special ed is that one size does not fit all. And so a meeting with a case manager once a year where they, you know, go over that for like one of these registration forms as a little practice thing could be a way of doing that. Uh, assigning your kids two teachers a year that they have to communicate their accommodations to like, there's ways to do this without it being full on, and here you go. Because again, some some taste of those experiences will prepare them for what they're going to do. But they don't have to, you know, I, I, as 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 is appropriate to each student. Right. And one of the things I tell parents too is be cognizant of your child. A child with extreme anxiety, that's mm. probably not the best. That's what I worry about with the IEP meetings. And again, yeah. it is not, it is not true that doing that means you're ready for the next thing and not doing that means you're not ready for the next thing because they are very different processes. Right. Um, But what's interesting is, um, you know, there's a small study that I use in some of my programs. And again, it is small, but some of the anecdotal stuff that came out of it was a student said, well, nobody told me it was a learning disability which is interesting, you know, like they told, they told her it was a learning difference. And that is, and, and I, and I, please don't send hate mail. No, it is a learning difference. I get it, but it's a disability 
And if, and if it is, it's important because that's the only way you get accommodations. It is not the Americans with Differences um, Act. And, and I, I think, you know, as a parent, that's, that's such a hard discussion. Yeah, I totally you know, did that, yeah. So many parents are like, how do I tell my child? Do I tell them that they have dyslexia? Do I, mm-hmm. you know, I see so much of that. And I know that that was one thing that we really embraced early on. Mm-hmm. You know, he had the wall at seven years old and, mm-hmm. you know, we waited a couple of months, but, you know, I sat him down and I told him that it was called dyslexia. And mm-hmm. I'm so relieved to have a name for it, you know, but I never called it a disability. Right. And I think it was about a year ago. Um, you know, it's definitely once his whole COVID life began, mm-hmm. he overheard me on the phone talking to somebody. And I, you know, I kept saying the word disability over and over and over again. He let that ruminate in his head for a few weeks mm-hmm. and he came into my office and he was crying and he said, mommy, am I disabled? Mm-hmm. And I was like, let's have a conversation about disability. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because he thought then that that meant that he was just really, really broken. And I was like, no, you're not broken, you know, but we had to have that conversation about learning what a learning disability is and, you know, why I call it a learning difference or a challenge, but, you know, how the world sort of sees it and classification and the law and, you know, on and on. I mean, probably way too over his head for 11 years old at the time, but you know, when your 11 year old's bawling in front of you saying, mommy, am I disabled? I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't say that to be critical of the way any parent approaches this with their Oh, no, no. Not, and don't mean to imply that. <laughs> yeah. But I, but I, I do want to adjust what you're saying. Cause I, I think it is really important. Again, this was the, you know, this was something that one of these students said and the challenge for her was like, she had no idea what she needed. And she was right. in a group of students who registered later on. And so I always think any discussion about your students should begin with the strengths. What are they good at? Absolutely. Um, You know, but I think if you want them to have accommodations at college, they have to be aware of what qualifies them for that as a Absolutely. And so that's what the challenge is. And so um, I, of course, now have talked so long, I don't remember why I was telling you about that study, but um, so it goes. So anyway, they're going (laughs) to register with us. once they're approved, as I said, that they may have the, 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 the function of sending the notification of the professors. That's how professors find out. So sometimes when students come to college, one of the things they ask for is notification to the professors. We might be in charge of it. They might be in charge of it. One colleague I spoke to still sends them emails with the letter attached, and they're supposed to forward it to the student. You know, Because a lot of our my colleagues feel Again, it's students' right and their choice. If they don't want to tell all of their professors they have a disability, we're not going to override that. And so we give it to them to do for themselves. So go ahead. Do the professors have to follow? I mean, are, are, are because the disability services at Hamlet University has granted accommodations to, you know, student Ashley. Mm-hmm. Um, do the prof- and this and the professors have all been duly notified that you know student Ashley has accommodations. Do the professors have to follow the accommodations? Yes. And so if a professor has a problem, they are supposed to contact us. Okay. Um, now one of my colleagues at where is she Central Arkansas University 
um, said they have very few problems with that. They have a lot of trainings that they do and they generally, their, their professors are on board. Um, but if a professor objects, they're supposed to contact the office and have a process. Um, they don't always. So if your student ever you know, presents a, a professor with their letter of accommodation or their email and the professor says, oh, you can't have that in my class, I would have them immediately contact their disability services coordinator and say, Professor Roberts said I couldn't have this. And then it's, that is where it is our job. That is not an advocacy piece they have to take on. Then, you know, the, the department, usually they'll meet with the professor. They may call in other members of the department to say like, why is this a problem? And is there something else we can do with this? Or, you know, sometimes professors are right. And what they asked for is a fundamental alteration. Of, of what their school, of their testing, or they're doing in their, their class. Um, and sometimes they're not. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it depends. But yes, generally, they're not supposed to just be say to somebody, you can't have that in my class. Okay. I just, I mean, since yeah. we were talking about the notification to the professors, yeah. then, I mean, because you do hear within the K through 12 advocacy, right, you know, the teacher may have ignored the accommodations or you know, in many cases, sometimes they don't always know about what the accommodations are. So mm -hmm. I didn't know yep. how that would work with the professor world. And I'm sure that that's a huge question that pro you probably get a lot as well. <laughs> well. And I think it's a reasonable, you know, because I've said to you that things can be different, but it isn't the professor's job to decide what is or isn't appropriate. There has to be some kind of process to determine whether it's indeed unreasonable mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever it is, a fundamental alteration. Um, I'm focused on something that you said earlier, which was talking yeah. about sort of the gen ed curriculum. You know, we, at least when I was in college, we called them the core classes that mm -hmm. were requirements for graduation. It didn't matter what your degree plan was in. Um, cause my son, for some reason has been asking me a lot of questions about college lately. <laughs> um, and I was trying to explain to him too, that because of what my major was, I held on to some of my core classes and did them through my senior year okay. in order to balance my college requirements. Oh, that's because fantastic. As an English major, I mean, you, you know, how many books were we required to read per class <laughs> per semester? So you didn't want to stack you know, kind of three was really the max per semester because then you're talking like 36 books and, mm -hmm. you know, the equation that you whittle that down to is you have to read 12 books a semester, right? In order to pass your midterm and your final. <laughs> but you didn't really do more than that. So at least in my college, we held on to our core classes so that we could sprinkle them in in order to give us balance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. I mean, and that's what, what you're getting at is something I think students need to be aware for themselves of what, how they need to balance because your advisor is probably not going to have an, any idea. Yeah. So, our advisors know, didn't care. They were just like, here's your requirements. Come back when right. you're ready to graduate. <laughs> so disability services offices, I have not spoken to anybody who serves as their student's academic advisor because I have no idea what you need to major in biology. Right. Um, so you can ask us for advice, but we, you know, it, it's all such an individual thing. I mean, the hardest thing about answering questions for folks and I watch is see if we have any um, on Facebook is 
I, I just, it's like a broken record. Everything's so individual, everything's so individual. So like for two students with dyslexia, one kind of coursework balance will be different than for somebody else. Um, but students need to be aware of what they need and how to best manage it because it's unlikely anybody at the school, unless, you know, unless you happen to have an academic advisor who has dyslexia or herself and, you know, has some suggestions. But again, her needs may be different than yours. Very, very true. Um, what are sort of, I mean, are there common accommodations that people sure. get? Is there... You said the combinations are different. So is there kind of like a shortened list? Is there, you know, <laughs> so, I'm sure kids don't get wiggle chairs in their classes and college. Oh, wow. Okay. No, they do not. So that would be considered a personal device. Now there right. are, really for students with physical disabilities, there are specialized chairs. Oh, I'm sure. Um, but usually it has to be a physical disability for that. You got to bring your own wiggle pad to sit on, I guess. Um, yeah, no, I, I bring up wiggle chair because my son had one all the way through. Oh, really? School. I think I might need one. When the pandemic started, I tried sitting on the exercise ball, but um, didn't work out very well. So, yeah, me <laughs> um, yes. So that's a great question. The short answer is yes. So as if you go to my website, there are two posts um, and one talks about the similarity of accommodations um, that I think well, you use difference in similarities. One is like, here's what colleges commonly approve and here's what they commonly don't approve. So common accommodations like the, you know, the, the free ice cream, if you will, of our, of our field is extended time for exams. It is generally the kind of thing that um, is, is approved in my experience because a lot of our students have slow processing, slow academic fluency, what, often on top of whatever else is going on. Now, if I had a student who, who just, you know, a sort of an anomaly, only had an auditory processing disorder, but processing speed, academic fluency was all you know within the average range. And she asked me for extended time for exams. I might say no, because if, I might give you note-taking accommodations, but I don't see the link between your auditory processing and you know taking 15 blue books and writing as much as you can about the Civil War. And so always colleges will say there has to be a connection between the accommodation you're requesting and what your disability is and how it manifests. Um, and so what is challenging is um, sometimes people, you know, evaluating students when they're in high school, you know, give this huge list and, and they, they're well-meaning of, of things that they recommend that aren't always linked to what the students actually are substantial limitation is. Mm -hmm. So that's a common one. Um, for our students with dyslexia, you would, um, as we talked about earlier, perhaps get accommodated with a laptop with text-to-speech software loaded on it so it could read the exam to you. Um, permission to use a laptop with spell checker so that when you are writing out your essay exams, they'll, you'll be able to spell correctly. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, Note-taking accommodations, I'm hearing, that's all over the map. Um, a lot of my colleagues are saying that getting human note-takers is a huge challenge. Um, we don't just have like, you know, a closet in the office and at the start of the semester, we just let all the note-takers out that we have, you know, hired to do all this stuff. So it, it often relies on students volunteering in your history class. Um, the professor reads an announcement that says, 
somebody disability services is seeking a note taker for this class if you're interested please contact them and then nobody volunteers and then two weeks later the student comes to us and says i still don't have a note taker um and i'm seeing these conversations in my community so uh, a, a more and more of my colleagues seem to be moving to using glean software or otter ai they give the student a copy perhaps remember that and, and i was making this point the other night the accommodation is permission to record. The thing you record with, or the thing with which you take notes, we don't have to give you. So if a school has a, a site license for Glean, they may give it to you as part of your note-taking accommodation. But if they don't, they're not required to do that. Because- I was gonna ask that question because you brought up personal laptops. Do yeah. colleges issue no. laptops to yeah. students? Not that I'm aware of. Okay, because so, I, I was going to say that I, I, I don't see that happening, but I'm not, it's been a long time. <laughs> what I meant was like the program that you would use on your laptop is not the thing we have to buy you. And gotcha. so, um, uh, you know, some students are getting note takers. I would never say that's not happening, but it's, it seems like the trend is moving away from that. Um, so the, uh, and some of these professors have no laptop policies, but if our office approves it, they would have to have, as I said, a really good explanation as to why it wasn't allowed in their class besides they just don't like it and they think it's a distraction. Interesting. Yeah. Because I was about to say, why wouldn't you want a laptop at this point in time? I, well, I always think they're probably sitting on a phone that's an equal distraction. So it's not a policy I understand, but that's not, nobody asked me. Um, so, I think um, there are I'm like probably dozens of accommodations that I'm not thinking of um, that are out there. And if you look, if you do some poking around, some colleagues have on their websites common accommodations. I want to say it was, I think Portland State in, in Oregon, when I was doing a program out there, has lists on their website of things that, that might be approved. Um, uh, I was going to make a point. Let's see. So one thing to keep in mind, and I have a post on this on my website, is just because you've seen an accommodation on a website doesn't mean your student's going to be eligible for that. So a couple of years ago, a parent emailed me and she was upset because the student was not approved for use of a memory aid on tests. And she said, I've seen two universities where this was you know, listed as a possible accommodation. And so I had said to her, I, I think there are extremely limited circumstances where somebody would do that because, and there are going to be a lot of tests where that's a fundamental alteration because the purpose of a test is to master your me measure your mastery of, of certain information. And if you now have that information available to you, we're no longer measuring your mastery. So um, it is not a common accommodation. Now, Having said this, and, and please walk away from this conversation with what I, I try to make sure I always say, students should ask for whatever they want. Just because some lady in New Jersey said it's not common doesn't mean they won't get it. Right. So I never, ever want to discourage folks. But what I do want is for you to feel empowered and knowledgeable about what the college environment looks like, because it's so important, because plans have to start with the end goal. 
So if you are trying to prepare students for, for college, you need to know what that environment looks like and work backwards. So um, I'm also not advocating that when the kid starts ninth grade, you go, ah, we're all done with these accommodations because you won't have those in four years if you go to college. That is not what I'm proposing. Um, but I do think you need an eye toward that. And mm -hmm. you need to have a plan that over four years does both things. So we, I'm really bad with visual. We're teaching the skills they need to do without certain kinds of supports while, and then eventually easing out of the, the accommodations they probably won't have. But it's never this, um, and it's not just this. So right. um, things, the, the common thing then again, um, extended time for papers and projects is not commonly approved, but you're not gonna get that from looking online. Right. Now, who gets accommodations like that? Students with physical or psychological disabilities that have very intense periods where for a couple of days they are non-functional. Um, generally, they don't get that as every time there's a paper due, they get five extra days. It has to be about the time that that paper is due, what they are going through at that time. I am not involved in those um, discussions, but often they have to at least notify the professor um, that, you know, they're just not going to be able to get that paper in. But it's not common for students with learning disabilities and ADD. And so that's why you have to know that stuff, because if that's what's happening for your student at the high school, that's not getting them ready. Right. That's a good one. Um, and I just kind of want to give re or reemphasize something that yeah. you just said. You don't want to like just because the child's in high school, turn everything off. Black Correct. Line. Yeah. Because I've been speaking with a parent in a state whose child is still in high school and is only halfway through high school. And the mm -hmm. teachers are telling the child that she shouldn't be asking for accommodations because she's not going to get those as an adult. And that's a, this is a very extreme example, but, yeah. and this child has extremely high anxiety. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, it's kind of, a no win situation kind of going on here, but you can't, you can't tell a 15 year old, a 16 year old child that, you know, they shouldn't be asking for something that they need in, in the public school environment, just because they may not get it when they're 32. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And also we can't say to students, except when it comes to licensing accommodations that they know are going to come up or, mm -hmm. um, uh, 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 you know, it, this is a very nuanced discussion in my field. And as I said, I'm certainly no legal expert, but like I see conversations in my community about, well, a student is asking like for extended time in a nursing program. Well, you can't have extended time to draw somebody's blood. Right. So, you know, but a fellow English major, like, <laughs> you know, can you use a spell checker when you're writing your great novel? I don't know, probably. So um, we're not there to say, to, to pull back accommodations because you're not gonna get them in real life either. Because what do we know? Except for the programs that do know, like if in an engineering program, you know, you can't get in without passing math at a certain level because you have to be able to do that math. It's right. important. So um, yeah, that's, that's extreme. Um, and also, I, you know, here's the challenge too. Look, I have nothing to say, nor should I, to 
high school professionals about what they need to do to get their job done. And so if, if they believe that accommodations are important to a student, and, and this is where it gets interesting. Um, uh, a lot of my colleagues would summarize the difference between K through 12 and um, college as the difference between a focus on success versus access. And so what that means is at, at, the, at the K through 12 level, we are there to try to maximize students outcomes, right? Do as much as we can for them to send them out to the next place ready to go. That's college laws are civil rights laws and they are designed to prevent discrimination and address it if it arises. And so those to me are very different mandates. And so we don't, and, and there's literally, I think it's in 504, it may be in the 88, says there's something about accommodations or, or whatever are not meant, oh, I had it in a program I just did, something like not meant to, um, um, I'm, I'm gonna blow it, but in other words, we're there to remove barriers. We're not there to make sure that you can, you know, perform to the absolute tip top of your ability. And that's a rough thing to say to people because they say, well, you know, if you give me more time, I can exceed this. Well, so sometimes so can your, your typical peers if we give them more time. So that's, a nuanced discussion. But I think that there are different things. You know, there's so much about our society that you can't access successfully if you don't at least have a high school diploma mm-hmm. and can read successfully. Mm-hmm. College is more of a choice, not a requirement. Right. And so there are so, two different discussions. Yeah. And I agree. And that's why I say I have nothing to say to um, high school professionals who keep accommodations in place because that's what students need for their high school program. Absolutely. That's not my job to tell them what to do. All I want is for everybody involved in this process for each student, and that includes the student and the parents and guardians and the professionals to say, hey, Ashley, if your goal is college, I want to tell you what college looks like. Here's what might happen. Here's what might not happen. Here's where we are with you. Over the next four years, can we play with this? And I I don't mean play like loosely, but in other words, uh, or I guess I do mean it loosely. Um, Can we start working on this? Can we start setting a goal that maybe next year we're going to try and get, you know, take this down or remove this, or it's only going to be in some classes and you do this so that everybody is on board with the decisions being made because as you said, you know, students need to be involved. I mean, the average, <laughs> what, what, what bothers me about our society in general, and this is also as somebody who's, you know, had two of my own kids go through college, is like, there's already so much pressure on 14 year olds as they're starting high school. What are you gonna do? Where are you gonna go to college? And oh my gosh, wouldn't I love to not be a part of that conversation and be, you know, doing this all. But I do think when we talk about IEPs and what's in them and the goals and objectives and the accommodations, it it should be informed by that conversation. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to hit ninth grade like, oh my God, let's get this going. You know, college is coming in four years, but start that, get the kid transition to high school. and, And then maybe for the next year, start to talk about how this looks. And I think that that's a difficult thing. And that's, that's the delicate balance that, in my opinion, is significantly missing in a lot of these conversations mm-hmm. is yeah, interesting that, you know, the life beyond high school is, is a very different thing. 
but especially, you know, given how, how much of a struggle a lot of our children are having in the public mm-hmm. school environment, that they're not succeeding on grade level, either because of poor curriculum choices, late identification, not enough remediation. There's a ton of factors going into this. And none of this is, you know, really about the capability of the child. It's more of, you know, a whole lot of factors that are external to the child and external to the family, you know? Mm-hmm. And so the families are trying to navigate their children through a system that is not necessarily dyslexia friendly, mm-hmm. uh, you know, especially as balanced literacy curriculum sort of control our educational environment across the country, you know, so families are really pushing my child can learn how to read just because they're dyslexic doesn't mean they can't learn how to read. Maybe they're sort of far behind. You're fighting a whole lot of battles at the same time. And so you're right. You need to sort of be having those discussions about, okay, you know, the, the real world isn't necessarily going to accommodate, you know, always giving you twice as long as you always need to be able to do everything, but let's, and I'm, and I'm, I'm not slamming that accommodation at all because it's a critical accommodation. Lord knows my child uses that accommodation as well, but how do you, how do you, how do you fit that better into the discussion to prepare the child for life beyond K through 12 mm-hmm. in the college environment or not in the college environment, but how, you know, that needs to be part of our discussion. And I think a lot of that's not a part of our community discussion because we're fighting so hard mm-hmm. just to get our children reading. Right. So and achieving on grade level. <laughs> right. And, and honestly, nothing's more important than that. I mean, yeah. you know, so, but it, it, here's where, where we're talking about other kinds of things. So what I mean is, you know, the differences between like this expression have to haves and nice to haves might be the place where you start to make those decisions. And mm-hmm. again, um, you don't take away extended time from a student who needs it for exams, right? Because they'll get that at college. So part of it is it has to be informed by, you know, real knowledge of what, what does and doesn't happen. I actually um, have my English finals playing through my head going, you know, if, if I was my son, there's no way I could do those finals. Yeah. And in, in the limited amount of time that we had to do those mm-hmm. finals because they're written, they're a written output and right. he has dysgraphia. He's got to have more time. <laughs> well, but also keep in mind, well, if he's got dysgraphia, we'll probably give him a laptop. Right. I mean, to me, one of the most effective things a student can do, and unfortunately, well, and there's ways to do this. If your student has dysgraphia, is really, really, a, 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 you know, a weak speller, even if they fill out the registration form online, submit a handwriting sample. That often, you know, we have still hand, you know, handwritten stuff uh, that that students can do. And every once in a while, I get a handwritten registration form, and I go, "Done. I don't even need to read this documentation." You know, like I can't read it either. You know, so here we go. Laptop for you. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Um, But for instance, one of the things that I see coming out of K through twelve is no penalty for spelling errors. Now, Mm -hmm. if you want to talk about real life. Very often when you do something at work, you're expected to spell check that and present a polished work. Now, if depending on what, if I'm a baker, it maybe doesn't matter. Although if I have my own store and I make my own menus, probably I want to have things, you know, spell checked. So 
the more we can do to move students away from human assistance and more toward use of technology and also study strategies of their own, that's the kind of stuff that I'm talking about. So mm -hmm. um, there was just this morning in my community, a thing about professor's notes. Do you, you know, do, do our colleagues give out as an accommodation access to professor's notes? Professors don't always have notes. Right. And so we're not gonna make them create notes for students. Um, what's important is a lot of my colleagues will say the purpose of any note-taking accommodation is to fill in the blanks in your own notes, not to tell you what was said that was important. Um, and part of the reason note, human note-takers are such a challenge for us is that I take notes for Ashley. Ashley comes to DS and says, I don't understand what Elizabeth wrote. I need a new note-taker. I don't like the way she takes notes. So mm -hmm. you take your own notes in whatever form you can. And then right. the recording of the class or the transcript, if there's a student um, who is deaf or hard of hearing and we're transcribing that class anyway for that student, maybe you get that. Mm -hmm. um, and it is your job to scan through that transcript and find the places where you miss something and fill in your own notes. So mm -hmm. if, if people are doing things for the student, that's the kind of stuff you need to be paying attention to as they move through high school. We don't give out study guides. Yeah. So I, I'm sure there are other examples of things, but that kind of stuff I think is the more obvious thing. But I, I do like you calling out note-taking because I'm just, again, I'm thinking about my own educational days and we all did take notes differently. And we all took notes differently based on like how we process the information, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I had one, <laughs> I had one friend who knew how to write in shorthand. My mother knew how to write in shorthand because she went to secretarial school in 19. Right. So. <laughs> right. And so when I am taking notes on, on, on research studies that I've read to, you know, to use in, in my writing, I use all manner of abbreviations. Nobody would, and the, it's sometimes even, I don't know what I meant. Um, so, uh, that's the thing. And so it is, I, I, I know there are people who will say my kid can't take his own notes. There are people in my field who would say literally, unless you don't have, you know, use of your hands, you can take some notes and maybe mm -hmm. we accommodate you with the use of your laptop. Um, it is hard to take notes, but is it impossible that you could take any notes? And maybe that is true, but that's why you would maybe get permission to use that recording. And yes, that means you have to go through that recording again, but that's why it's, it can be helpful to take as many notes as you can during class. And then now with, I mean, it's, you and I are old enough to remember tape recorders, right? Winding back to the place you need to go. Now with this technology, you can jump right to the place where you missed something. And so yeah. again, I am not saying any of this to be unsympathetic to our students, All right. our students, um, but you know, I just want to let you know that that's what my colleagues are talking about. And so what I always want, most of all, is for students to leave for college feeling confident that they know how to do the things they need to. Mm -hmm. And the more they get practice doing that in high school, that's going to build the confidence. And so when you take a student who's never had to take their own notes, and never had to prepare their own study guide and you send them off to college, I feel like you're really, talk about anxiety because we're gonna go, well, we don't do that. And that, that, that's, that's the raison d'etre, if you'll excuse my horrendous French accent for all of this stuff that I do right. because I want folks to know because there's still such a huge information gap. 
There is um, one one question specifically yeah. has come up that I think we should circle back on when we were talking about professors applying accommodations and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think it's especially keen now because of the COVID environment we're in mm-hmm. too, right? But accommodations when it comes to online classes, um, professors applying accommodations or not applying accommodations, you know, those, I've taken, it's been a long time, but I've taken some online classes, you know, and it was sort of a more strict environment necessarily than an in-person class. Mm-hmm. That's probably changed because, you know, a lot of time has gone by. <laughs> but how is it? Should it be a seamless application with accommodations, regardless of the platform in which it's delivered? I mean, in theory, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in, in, in a perfect world. And, and, you know, I was thinking when you were talking earlier about, you know, dyslexia and how it isn't necessarily, you know, we call it a disability because of the way we teach things and all of this stuff. And universal design for instruction is something that, you know, people will say, oh, well, you know, can, do you know of any colleges doing universal with design? Like, I haven't seen a list anywhere, you know, and I don't know that they guarantee every professor is doing universal design. So right. um, in theory, yes, it should be, is the online environment and the in-person environment should both have accommodations go, go through smoothly, but life is life. <laughs> it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes professors, you know, the, 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 the timer on the exam, even if the professor set it up, like goes off wrong, you know? So again, immediately students should contact a professor in the disability services office and say, I was supposed to have time and a half. I only had like the same amount of time as my classmates, but do it immediately. Don't wait till next week. Yeah. You know? So again, this is all part of, you know, when your students are having challenges in high school, coaching them on how to approach a teacher or an administrator or their case manager and letting them have that experience is really important because they will be the ones to tell us we have no idea that they had a problem with their timer yeah so yes i mean there are comments just sorry to to answer your question yes there are accommodations yes they 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 may be different because maybe everybody every class is recorded and you just don't need to ask for it then right and i found in college that it the the student teacher dynamic of course was different you know because it's not it's not a curriculum being applied across so many thousands of students across so many schools within your district you know and there's certain check boxes that everybody's trying to do and so your Mm -hmm. teacher is far more limited potentially in what they can or can't do for you in the scheme of things with everybody there there's kind of tends to be more constraints versus in college, you know, the professors just kind of, they just wanted you to perform at the end and you could have more, I don't, don't take this the wrong way, more maybe human discussions, but maybe it's just a more adult discussion. You know, I, I see, I felt like I got a lot of grace from my professors. If I was just upfront and honest mm. with them about, you know, a challenge or, or some, I like, I, I remember I had a, I had a midterm, but I had a, I mean, I was, this is gross. I was throwing up in the bathroom because I had a migraine Mm. and, you know, I sucked it up and went up to my professor and my professor could clearly see that I was (laughs) ill. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) And migraines are not fun. Sure. And I was like, I, I, I will suck it up and I will sit here for the next three hours and do this. If you allow me to get up as much as I need to, mm-hmm. to go pace the hall and drink water and go throw up again. 
Mm-hmm. And he was like, call me tomorrow. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I, 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 I <laughs> so you like to say all the time, and I don't mean this in a nice way always, professors are humans too. So right. some, some of them are going to be very empathetic and some of them are not going to be, and I can't tell you who's going to be who. So exactly, you know, your rights are where we step in, but you have to tell us. Right. Um, and so, you know, and it is important again for students to know what the limits of their rights are too, as we said, it's not your right to have the grade expunged if you show up after your first exam. So yeah. that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> but it, you know, they should talk to their coordinator and ask any questions they have. Um, some of my colleagues, as I'm, as I'm interviewing them for the next book, I'm asking them, most of them say they do tell students what to do, you know, in advance if, if a professor says no. And if they didn't get that information, they can ask it now, yeah. you know, for the future. Um, and I just want to throw this in here because a friend of mine brought this up recently. And I think that this is, uh, this is an important thing to just kind of bring up. But um, look at the curriculum of the colleges that your children are kind of considering and take those curriculums into your IEP meetings with the high school and state, okay, freshman English 101, my child would have to write a 10-page paper on XYZ or, you know, a 10-page paper is a requirement for freshman college English. My child can't write more than a two and a half page paper, the goal needs to be about getting the child to that stage as well. Yeah. So um, in the presentation I did for Lawrence School the other day, you know, we talked about the things that they have to be ready to do, as I said, make their own study guides, um, manage their own time, which is, you know, a problem for most college students with or without disabilities. Um, Write a research paper using primary sources totally agree now what you're talking about and that's uh, thank you for bringing this up is what we would consider a modification Mm -hmm. so i'm guessing in those classes that you're talking about unless so if your student is at the public school in a um forgive me if i'm using the wrong terminology my case my k through 12 stuff is rusty what i would call a self-contained class so a special ed class just for kids with special ed taught by a special educator Um, often that curriculum is modified. Correct. So in this particular case, this child is a gen ed curriculum. They have an IEP, but they're hundred percent gen ed. Um, But everything has sort of been like modified. Modified without being modified or without the authorization to modify. So the child is not performing at grade level, Uh but the child has college desires. Okay. And the child's not functioning on, essentially the child is not functioning on grade level. So, okay. And, you know, but, and the parent is arguing for grade level achievement by pulling down those freshman college Mm -hmm. curriculums and showing, okay, in, you know, two years, this is what my child would have to do. If the parent is and they're not. Right. Yeah. And they're not anywhere close to this. So yeah. the goals have to be to achieve this. <laughs> right. Yes. So, I mean, that's not the scenario I 
always hear about. Sometimes I hear about parents saying, I want my student in general ed, but she can't write a 10 page paper. And so I want you to assess her on her two page paper. Right. Um, so yeah, that's which is important it. too. So, and I don't want to downgrade the importance of that, but yes. <laughs> no, but when we're talking, the research shows that the best preparation for college is to be in the general ed curriculum, but meeting the expectations for that curriculum and without modifications. And so, I mean, and that's not hard to see, like how do you work your way up to being ready to write that college paper by having the experience of writing the papers. So it goes back to exactly what I said. If a student's success in high school, whatever that means, mental health, you know, anxiety, ability to meet certain requirements is not up to meeting the requirements of their typical peers. I have nothing to say about where you place them or what accommodations you are, but I think you need a conversation about whether transition to a traditional four-year college environment after this is going to be the next step. Mm-hmm. And community colleges do require students to write papers. So it isn't just like, oh, well, she'll just go to the community college. They right. get the same accommodations and don't that we right. do. And you still have to write that paper. And so mm-hmm. all of this is just if a student, you know, is just if, if whatever the team decides is the reason the student should be in the general ed curriculum. I'm not here to, 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 to say anything about that at all. But what they're expected to do matters for their preparation for college. So that's a really good point, Ashley. Yeah, it's really important. And sometimes, as you say, it's not. It is the parents who want them to be ready. And the school, for whatever reason, is thinking that they're doing them a, a, a service by, by doing that. But it's it, it, back to the self-efficacy piece of this. When you know that you have already successfully written a paper and that you'll be ready to do that without all these supports at the next place, then it feeds your confidence and you will go to the writing center and get help. Whereas if you've never tried, where would you even start to know how to get started? Right. That's such a good point. And, you know, I, I, I hear stories from some of my college consultant friends who specialize in working with students with disabilities. And sometimes the goal of the family is for the student to get into the most highly selective school they can. And they're getting all manner of supports to do that. And some of them are supports they're not going to get at our college. Now, I understand that some families are in a position to provide supports outside of the school, you know, even at the college level. Um, but what's important to know with that stuff is, you know, students don't often have somebody who's going to sit down with them outside of class and say, okay, now where do you get started? So even if you're providing those supports, how is it being provided? Is somebody sitting down and saying to your student, now, what do you do next? And what are we going to take out? And here's what we do, or is it, here I am, where do you want to start? So using those opportunities to, to develop student self-awareness and their organization skills, their initiation of work. And I do like those, uh, the, the different centers that colleges do provide to students and those can be great for tutors. And sometimes you find a tutor that you gel with and you might stick with them as long as you can. And I know I did that with math and, mm-hmm. and I should have done with that with French, which is why my accent's so terrible. Um, <laughs> so yeah. And so, you know, one thing to be aware of, too, we talked about personal services. And again, the the law does provide some examples of things that are personal services that they don't have to. But the way schools interpret that is a lot of schools don't have a learning disability specialist. So we're not required to provide one. 
And so if your student needs to talk to somebody who really understands disabilities, they're probably gonna have to find one on their own. There are these fee-based programs, like a lot, uh, not a lot, I shouldn't say, a couple of dozen schools have, you can find those in the K&W guide to students with learning, to college for students with learning differences. And um, those charge a fee. It doesn't mean that the people who work in them also have a special ed background. So there are lots of questions that families should ask about that. Um, but that's one way to get, you know, that kind of support. Definitely. So I have kept you. Oh, but it's so much fun. Quite <laughs> a bit longer than I promised. I, <laughs> I know. Okay. And I, did, I, did you see me trying to get out of my chair? I enjoyed it. Yeah. No, and I, there, there, are, we could keep going, but <laughs> we can do it again sometime if you want. Definitely. Um, I think, I think having you back periodically, you know, sure. talking about, especially, you know, college requirements change, things change, technologies develop. Yeah. There's, you know, it's a constantly moving thing and um I I know in you know uh five five years you and I are going to be best friends because college is going to be on our door and I'm be like listen I will not plan to retire before then okay. <laughs> fair enough so um but thank you so much oh, for joining pleasure. us thank you for today and um this has been great um we've a lot a lot of comments have been coming in going oh, yes goodness. and okay so I'm, I'm really excited that we did this today. So oh, well, thank you so much for this opportunity. And if you're watching or uh, live or the recording, my website is uh, ldadvisory.com. You should be able to find it if you look up my name. And, you know, shoot me, email is the best way to get to me. My, my Facebook DMs are overwhelming me. So email and I can read on a nice big screen. Um, and that's more manageable. So send me your questions. I can't tell you where your kids should go to college. Um, I don't do college consulting, but I have a list on my site of the people I trust that I know know their stuff. Um, I do some small group office hours uh, for families, um, for parents and guardians, just to sort of ask your questions in a personal small group with some other parents going through the same stuff. And those are limited right now while I'm so busy, but you can sign up for those. So thank you very much, Ashley. It was so much fun. Thank you. I do appreciate you taking the time today, especially on a Saturday. My pleasure. <laughs> and we are off. <laughs>